Ah, Canada. Mention the province of Saskatchewan, and visions dance in our heads of vast expanses of wilderness, clear waters, and wildlife that's genuinely wild, far from the problems of modernity. But no place is immune from the deadly intrusions of the nuclear industry, and they've targeted northern Saskatchewan as ground zero for the development of small modular nuclear reactors, citing the usual talking points of jobs, increased energy supplies for the locals, yada yada. But then you hear from a genuine expert, a First Nations woman who lives in northern Saskatchewan and has fought for decades against nuclear's incursion on her ancestral lands. And she tells you, There is no way that any of these northern communities can afford a nuclear power plant, small or otherwise. There's no way any of our northern communities could possibly use the amount of energy that one of those could put out. So basically, like we know that in northern Saskatchewan, 80% of the electricity used is used by the mining industry. And in Saskatchewan, it's primarily uranium mining. So who does it benefit? It benefits themselves. Well, when you learn what has already happened and is being pushed to continue to happen nuclear-wise in what should be the protected and pristine wilderness of northern Saskatchewan, you begin to realize that there's nowhere on earth that does not provide its own version of that awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Candace Paul a member of the English River First Nation in northern Saskatchewan, and currently outreach coordinator for Committee for Future Generations, a group dedicated to educating the public about the risks of nuclear waste and uranium mining. We learn from Candice how far back the uranium mining industry has been manipulating the local population and contaminating the land, and the hidden reasoning behind the most recent push to cite an unproven small modular nuclear reaction in these far northern lands. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than has ever been included in a presidential tweet. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 1st, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting with the U.S., in New Mexico, 
It looks like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is poised to okay the move of spent fuel from reactors like San Onofre to what is being called temporary storage in New Mexico. This despite intense local, national, and international opposition to Holtec International's plans for the site. Note that labeling it temporary is based on the fiction that is Yucca Mountain. Long proposed and long fought against as a permanent repository for nuclear waste on western Shoshone land in the U.S. state of Nevada. Indeed, it has been shown and reported in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that both Trump and Biden agree that there should not be a nuclear waste site at Yucca Mountain. But by keeping that concept alive, that fiction alive, it allows the nuclear sleight-of-hand artists to claim that any site for deposit of radioactive waste in New Mexico or West Texas is really only going to be quote-unquote temporary. But it is believed by many, and for logical reasons, that if this waste is allowed to be deposited in New Mexico, it will de facto become the permanent waste repository for nuclear reactor waste from around the country. The NRC is accepting public comments on this through September 22nd, and there is an excellent article by Beyond Nuclear that spells out not only what you can do, but has some suggested phrases for you to use. I speak further about this in the activist shoutouts at the end of the program. Meanwhile, to get a powerful and personal sense of what this proposed waste dump really means, I highly recommend that you read I highly recommend that you read Ian Zabarti's article, A Message from the Most Bombed Nation on Earth, which is the Western Shoshone Nation of Indians. That will be linked on the website. Big news as Moody's Investor Services last week released a report that found five of Exelon's six Illinois nuclear facilities are at high risk and or more extreme red flag risk for both heat and water stress. While Exelon's Quad Cities plant on the Mississippi River is considered at high risk for flooding. Other reactor facilities considered at high risk for heat and or water stress include Davis-Bessey in Ohio, Point Beach in Wisconsin, Duane Arnold in Iowa, Palisades in Michigan, and Monticello in Minnesota, which also has a high risk of flooding. Nuclear reactors need large amounts of water for cooling, so if water becomes too hot, or if levels fall too low in rivers or lakes the plants rely on, or if flooding occurs. The reactors have to temporarily shut down or curtail generation. This usually happens during summer when they are most needed to meet peak demand, which makes nuclear energy a bad financial risk, as well as all of its other problems. In Florida, after three unplanned nuclear reactor shutdowns in over three days this month, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has launched a special inspection at Florida Power and Light's Turkey Point plant. The two-unit facility tripped or shut down three times between August 17 and August 19, and the NRC said Florida Power and Light had supplied different explanations for each event. In Ohio, the state attorney general, Dave Yost, is pressing lawmakers to repeal House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout law, after the bill's passage was implicated in a federal corruption investigation. 
the charges that led to the arrest of the Speaker of the House in Ohio was explored in depth in our interview with environmental trial attorney Terry Lodge in Nuclear Hot Seat number 475 from July 28, 2020. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of week. Here's the latest chill to convince you that radioactive nuclear waste is mm-mm good for you. A company called NDB is touting nano-diamond self-charging batteries, each one powered by a small piece of recycled nuclear waste. Not only do they disguise the radioactive nature of these batteries with two buzzwords and a hyphen between nano-diamond, but they claim that they will last anywhere from a decade to 28,000 years. How's that for a spread? And they won't need another charge until beyond the half-life of plutonium. Their PR talks about it being indestructible, totally safe in an electric car crash, and that at the heart of each cell is a small piece of recycled nuclear waste, high-grade nuclear waste that would be dangerous, difficult, and expensive to store with a very long half-life and leave nothing behind but quote-unquote harmless byproducts. Does the 1950s shill phrase, too cheap to meter, in reference to nuclear energy, ring a bell? Just more propaganda, blah, blah, blah. And that's why, oh, the heck with it, the nuclear industry and all of its manifestations is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Japan, the big news is the resignation of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the end of his current term based on health issues. The man has ulcerative colitis. Two points. First of all, the majority of articles made no mention of Fukushima and how Abe lied to the Olympic Committee in order to gain the Olympics by saying that Fukushima had been handled. The other point is that ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune disease, and exposure to nuclear radiation is a known cause of autoimmune diseases. It can also make an existing case much worse. No word if any connection has been suspected or is being investigated. The Japanese government is set to allow the lifting of evacuation orders for highly radioactive areas near the disaster-stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station with its triple reactor meltdown. This is without decontamination work on the site, and it will take place on condition that residents will not resettle there. So the evacuation order may be lifted as long as people continue to be evacuated. If it weren't so serious, this is what would be this week's numbnuts. And in the last three months, the Japanese government has held five public hearings to move it forward with the decision to dump radioactive water from Fukushima into the ocean. While the world's attention is diverted by COVID-19, the election cycle in the United States, and so many other issues... Japan may move forward as early as September or October, despite overwhelming public opposition to the plan, even in Japan. If dumped, the contaminated water could reach the eastern coast of South Korea within a year. Hajime Matsukubo 
Secretary General of the Citizens Nuclear Information Center, says an ocean dump doesn't make sense and suggests that Japan should just leave the radioactive water in the current storage tanks and that there is room for more storage tanks to be built. The reason for this rush to dump is suspected as being the continued cost of storing the water. In a release from the Nobel Prize-winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, the group has mandated that France must clean up Algerian nuclear test sites, where France carried out 17 nuclear tests in the Algerian desert between 1960 and 1966. And in Scotland, the 44-year-old Hunterston nuclear reactors will close permanently in 2021, but right now, one of the closed reactors is going to be allowed to power up, run for six months, and then be shut down. Just leave it off and put it out of its misery now. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, there are so many issues begging for our attention and involvement these days. COVID-19, here in the U.S., the presidential election global warming influenced wildflowers, ice melt in the Arctic, and extreme weather events, international warmongering, and I'm sure you've got your own personal list of issues that are making demands for your attention and pulling at your heart and soul. It's hard to know where to put one's limited attention, and nuclear is rarely at the top of that list. Yet, even if we defeat covid improve the financial well-being and health of the populace, even turn around global warming. The problems of the nuclear fuel chain and the radioactivity it has already released and will continue to release will remain. That's why you need nuclear hot seat. We don't get distracted. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week in depth. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast and broadcast you can count on to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. But financially, as COVID has hit so many of us hard, it's hit Nuclear Hot Seat's donation base really hard, which makes your help to keep the show going more important than ever. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is now where you can set up a monthly $5 donation, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. if you venture outside of the house anymore. Please do what you can now to help us keep going. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Candace Paul has lived in northern Saskatchewan for more than three decades with her husband, Marius Paul. She has an extensive background in traditional culture, educational and emergency services activism, and most specifically, fighting against the many ways the nuclear industry has imposed upon, manipulated, and polluted the land that she calls home. When her community became a target of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization on a proposal to store high-level nuclear waste in her family's territory, she became Outreach Coordinator for Committee for Future Generations. This group has been educating the public about the risks of nuclear waste and uranium mining for the past nine years. 
To learn the full story of nuclear machinations in the far north of Canada, Candace joined us via Zoom from her home in northern Saskatchewan. We spoke on Friday, August 28, 2020. Candace Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. It's good to be back. Let's start with a little bit of background on what the uranium and nuclear situation has been in Saskatchewan, starting with uranium mining. How far back does that go, and what has been the impact in northern Saskatchewan? Uranium mining started in northern Saskatchewan, uh, north of Lake Athabasca, so that's right near the top of Saskatchewan, back in the late 1950s. And it was a result of the Cold War. So the uranium being mined there was mined for the UK, France, Germany, and the US. I'm not so sure about Germany, but there were some German companies that were involved. So they were mining for uh, nuclear weapons, essentially. And then later on, they developed more and they wanted to open more mines they discovered more uranium on the south side of Lake Athabasca. They didn't really give us a choice then either. So northern Saskatchewan is primarily uh, indigenous people. As a result of colonialism, you know, uh, we went through residential school systems and, and that sort of thing. Resource development, we had no say over, basically. We tried, uh, some people tried to get information out. So back in the late 70s, early 80s, they wanted to start opening these mines. And my brother-in-law was one of the people that was trying to tell people what radiation was and that these mines were going to be for these kinds of things. And of course, then, because he had a small publication, but it was this publication paid for by government. As soon as he started doing that, they cut his funding. So, you know, trying to get information out to people whose primary language is not English was very difficult. But they did understand and they did know that uranium was being used for for nuclear weapons and they didn't agree with it. They also have a long traditional knowledge about uranium. They called it the Black Rock and they knew that the Black Rock needed to be left in the ground. They have stories, legends, that once it comes out of the ground, it's going to cause death and destruction. And of course, it has. So uh, there was not a lot of huge resistance. They promised, you know, when, when the concerns came up, the industry and the government promised that this would bring prosperity to northern Saskatchewan. And of course, it did not. It brought a class system to northern Saskatchewan. With it also brought, um, they learned from those initial mines. They had developed a town around them called Uranium City. And they learned from it, there was starting to be people getting sick. And so they distributed those people. When you say they distributed those people, what does that mean? Well, miners came from all over. And it wasn't primarily Indigenous people mining there. It was people from other places. And once they shut down that mine, those people left. So this thriving town that had theaters, hotels, bars, hospitals, schools became virtually a ghost town. There's only about 50 people in it now. 
And how many mines are we talking about that were being opened in the area? Around Uranium City on that side in those early 50s, there's over 40 legacy mines. Some have been cleaned up, some have not. Most were abandoned. Canadian and Saskatchewan government are disputing who should pay for cleaning it up. And it's in the, you know, for the big gunner mine it is in the area of $250 million so far. And that's only going to put, they can only use waste rock from the area. They can't really bury it too much. So they only have enough to put about a meter, three feet on top of, of these contaminated places. So that doesn't sound like much of a cleanup at all. No, and there's places that cannot be cleaned up. Like for decades, 60 years, those tailings piles that were left behind were blowing and flowing with the, you know, the melting snow into Lake Athabasca and contaminating the lake. And there are signs on the beaches along Lake Athabasca that tell pregnant women and children under the age of 12 should only eat you know, a certain amount of fish out of this lake, which is kind of nonsensical when it comes to radionuclides. Because once a radionuclide is ingested, it's in your body. And if it starts to do what it does, break down in the body, it starts to damage the organs and starts to damage the DNA. And, you know, 60 years later, we, could be, we are seeing, beginning to see, the people not being able to thrive as well. Their health isn't as good. We see soaring cancer rate. And we're also starting to see more children with physical disabilities and cognitive disabilities. Way up in the north, nobody sees them. With the uranium mines, it sounds like they went through a period where they peaked and then they were either closed down or abandoned and that went away. What was the time frame for that? And was there a period when there was no mining and no nuclear atomic intrusion on the land or any further intrusion? No, there wasn't a time when there was no longer any intrusion. They started opening mines on this side in the late 70s, early 80s. They last, I believe, Uranium City closed down in 1980. But they learned from that experience of Uranium City not to have communities built alongside the mines. So all of the further mines since then have been fly-in one week or two weeks in, two weeks out. Initially, that was even longer periods that people were were staying up in the mines at camps. So they built camps to house the workers. After they met their limit on their dosimeter, they all have to wear, they would fly back home and stay home for a couple of weeks and then fly back. So part of what happened, you know, like I mentioned, we have the colonial system that had residential schools taking children away from parents. Now we have parents being taken away from children. So it's had an impact on our social structure in our communities. We haven't been able to have a period of time where we could reestablish what the residential damage, residential school damage was and recover from that. Then we're into this. And basically 
those jobs in the mines are the only jobs being offered and the only economy being offered in northern Saskatchewan. So early 70s, the Clough Lake Mine opened, the Key Lake Mine opened, uh, the Rabbit Lake Mine opened. Since then, there's been the MacArthur River and the Cigar Lake. Right now, the only mine operating is Cigar Lake, and it just reopened. They had shut down for a period during COVID. When you talk about the miners who were being flown in, were they primarily First Nations people and they were being separated from their families that way, or were they primarily the settlers who were coming in? Initially, they were settlers, but the mining companies, in order to access these resources, made agreements to start to hire a lot more of the Indigenous people. At one point, they had about 50%, 49% of the miners were Indigenous. So then they claimed that they were the biggest employer of Aboriginal people in Canada, I believe. That was what was on their billboard. A lot of the workers were the grunt workers. The Indigenous people got the grunt work, the dirty work, the more dangerous work, the work in the mills. So like sometimes there's summer student employment. So people who are coming out of high school or coming out of, un- or, you know, in summer break in university would be able to get a job up at the mines. And the Indigenous kids ended up working in the mill. Non-Indigenous kids worked in the offices. So there was definitely a class system and a hierarchical system in play there, yeah. There was also many complaints about do your job, whatever we tell you to do, and shut up. It doesn't matter if it's dangerous or you'll be blacklisted, basically. So, you know, that's the only economy around. So people did a lot of dirty work and their health is paid for it. You know, there's, there's all kinds of chemicals involved, you know, milling of uranium. And it's concerning. A lot of people, there's been a slowdown since Fukushima, since 2011. And gradually all of the mines except Cigar Lake, like I said, had shut down. Only one mill was operating at McLean Lake. There was also a time when northern Saskatchewan was targeted as a place for Canada to bring its nuclear waste and create a waste dump there. And I know you were very involved in that battle. When did that come up and what was the pushback like? They came up in 2011. So there were three communities in northern Saskatchewan that were targeted. Basically, they pitched it to a lot of northern communities and only three communities communities bit the bait, basically. And one of them happened to be English River First Nation, which is where I live. And the neighboring community of Pine House and Creighton on the far east side of Saskatchewan. Pushback was when people started to find out, pretty big. Most people did not want nuclear waste buried in northern Saskatchewan. We were told, well, you know, you guys, the, the uranium comes from here, you should take back the nuclear waste. Well, it's not the same thing. Nuclear waste is a whole bunch of other elements that didn't exist until they started playing with it and fissioning. And it's about a billion times more radioactive than the uranium that leaves here. So in order to educate people, we started a petition 
pamphleting. We attended meetings with the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. Uh, we did a walk from northern Saskatchewan down to the capital city of Regina to raise awareness along the way because most people in Saskatchewan did not know what was happening. So we raised 20,000 signatures on that petition, delivered it to legislature. There was people who signed it from over 250 communities. About 80% of the people in northern Saskatchewan who were able to sign it were against having nuclear waste buried in northern Saskatchewan. And in 2014, NUMO pulled out. Nuclear Waste Management Organization pulled out of Saskatchewan completely. Off the record, they told one reporter that it was a small group of misinformed people that convinced the region that this was too dangerous to even consider. So, except we only based things on facts. We you didn't, we were well informed. We had talked to scientists, physicists all over the world. This is an unproven, premature way to deal with nuclear waste because they are not certain that it's going to work. So that brings us to the current state of affairs. And there was recently an article, and you are cited in it, but there's wording in this about the creation of an, quote, I have to read this, interprovincial corporate partnership to support the launch of a research center to work on developing small modular reactors for use in Saskatchewan. Can you unpack that and explain what it is that they are talking about? Canada has been looking for a way to keep the nuclear industry and the uranium mining industry alive. And the only way that they can come up with is to promote small modular nuclear reactors for use in northern Canada and Saskatchewan and well most most of the population in Canada lives you know in the bottom third of the country and the rest of the Canada is primarily indigenous people and that's where most of the resources are so they've been pushing the Canadian Mining Association so they've been promoting it to northern communities where there's still diesel generators for electricity, you know, as far north as Baffin Island, and that's about as far north in Canada as you can get. Is that north of the Arctic Circle? Oh, well north of the Arctic Circle. They've done this push, and they've used, Saskatchewan has used the University of Saskatchewan as a means of promoting this idea, getting research done on this idea. Then there is also Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. That is a conglomerate of companies who are pretty shady. Um, one of them is SNC-Lavalin. They're up on charges, aren't they? They have been up on charges. They've been up uh, exposed as interfering at the top levels of government, trying to influence whether or not they should be charged. They are a really sketchy company. They are not allowed to borrow money or bid on construction projects funded by the World Bank because of bribery charges in the past. And they've had bribery charges in Canada. And they're like, they work internationally. And Canadian government has dozens and dozens of contracts with them. So anyway, back 
a decade ago, close to a decade ago, uh, Government of Canada, who owned Atomic Energy Canada Limited, broke it down and sold it to this conglomeration for like $12 million. That's nothing. That is literally nothing. So the Chalk River Laboratories north of Ottawa, where the radioisotopes were being made for medical purposes. So there's a ton of nuclear waste there because that reactor had to shut down. It was past its age. Then there's the Pinawa White Shell Laboratories in Manitoba that had some sort of accident back in the 80s. It's still classified. And it is the place, too, where they were researching deep geological repository for storage of nuclear waste. And there's so there is some nuclear waste there. Manitoba, after that accident, had put forth a moratorium ban on storing nuclear waste in Manitoba. But when AECL was closed and sold to uh, this conglomerate, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, they are now going to bury on site that nuclear waste that is there. And same with Chalk River Laboratories, they're going to build a mound around the nuclear waste within about 100 meters of the Ottawa River. And that's just upstream of, is it Ottawa? Ottawa, and it flows into the St. Lawrence, which flows right to the ocean. You know, this company is promoting... Canadian Nuclear Laboratories is promoting development of small modular nuclear reactors at Chalk River and at Pinawa and Point Le Pro Nuclear Power is also promoting it in New Brunswick. So last year, Province of Ontario, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick signed an agreement, an MOU, to try and develop research and develop these small modular nuclear reactors. Was that the memo of understanding last December 2019? That would be around that time, yes. Yes. So they made this agreement. They're going to look into doing this. So those are the three provinces where there's like Ontario and New Brunswick have nuclear power stations. Saskatchewan has the uranium mines. Back in 2008, 2009, Saskatchewan had the Uranium Development Partnership hearings all over Saskatchewan. And part of what the government of Saskatchewan had been promoting then was the full meal deal. They wanted nuclear power. They wanted reprocessing. They wanted nuclear waste storage. They wanted the whole processing, making of fuel, et cetera. Saskatchewan people didn't want. And then right after that, we had the nuclear waste issue, which we we squashed that plan, part of their plan. So uh, since then, they have opened the Sylvia Fedoric Center for Nuclear Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan a few years ago to promote research on nuclear development of all kinds. They also have, just prior to that announcement, there was an announcement that they were the nuclear secretariat. They were opening an office called nuclear secretariat to promote small modular reactors for use in in, in Saskatchewan. 
I'd say it's a bit of each. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's public money going into these things. That is the concern because there is no way that any of these northern communities can afford a nuclear power plant, small or otherwise. There's no way any of our northern communities could possibly use the amount of energy that one of those could put out. So basically, like we know that in northern Saskatchewan, 80% of the electricity used is used by the mining industry. And in Saskatchewan, it's primarily uranium mining. So who does it benefit? It benefits themselves. Pangnertung, a, a place on Baffin Island, when they were being pitched this SMNR to replace their diesel generator, put out a very well-researched review with lots of technical links to go with it. But primarily, they said, you guys couldn't get here. When our diesel generator caught fire in winter, you could not get here to help us. You're not going to be able to get here to help us if a nuclear reactor accident happens. I took part in a forum uh, last November. And one of the people on the panel was somebody from Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. And he was promoting small modular nuclear reactors. And he said, uh, if something goes wrong, it'll only be a small, you know, few kilometer radius exclusion zone. Well, this is all wilderness where you're thinking of putting these. This is wilderness in huge ecosystems. Most of it is water. Northern Saskatchewan, northern Manitoba, northern Ontario is primarily water. So if something happens, that exclusion zone is going to be flowing in that water and it's going to be impacting us in our backyard for the sake of industries. It's not really for the sake of Indigenous communities who are using diesel. They're promoting themselves as green, as if the only pollutant on the planet is CO2. And the amount of pollutants that they spew out in the processing, milling, and all of these things, and the radiotoxicity, and God help us if they start reprocessing in Canada, is going to be massive. It is massive. There's leaks in the mills, gone through the floors of the milling. The molybdenum extraction plant has got a leak getting into the groundwater, and they haven't addressed it. So how do we trust them? Well, it's clear that the nuclear industry will do whatever it needs to in order to promote itself and get the government money and all the rest. I mean, we see this in the United States. This is virtually the same interview with different specifics in it that I do every week because we're all up against the same kind of mega-moneyed, influential sources that do not pay attention to people or the good of the planet. No. So given the situation you now find yourself in being a focal point for this push for small modular nuclear reactors, they like to say small modular reactors, SMR. I always put nuclear in and I notice that you do too. With the push for these little cute little modular, sounds like Lego reactors. 
being so heavily promoted in your area, what are you and the people in your organization and the people in the community doing in this pushback? Primarily the people in the communities don't know a heck of a lot about it. Other than a few of us who have been watching this, researching this, uh, watching it unfold. I'm working along with uh, Interchurch Uranium Committee Education Co-op, and we are putting out a push to educate people of Saskatchewan about what small modular nuclear reactors are and what they aren't. And the fact that no nuclear in Saskatchewan is going to get in here unsubsidized because there isn't a community or the Sask power, the energy provider can't afford it. So it's not going to come in here unsubsidized. That's public money. We have an election coming up in the province this year, this fall. And uh, the two primary parties are both pretty much sitting on the same wavelength as promoting it. So we've got a big, big battle on our hands. The other thing is they're promoting it as a way to say that they have to do something about greenhouse gas emissions. This is going to be the answer, except it's not the answer because there isn't one built. There isn't a place to manufacture it. There isn't the fuel systems aren't in place. It's going to be a decade to 30 years before there will be a small modular reactor. That's 30 years that they will get away with not doing anything about greenhouse gas emissions. The other thing about it is they want it to get at the tar sands in Saskatchewan. And now the Alberta government is, you know, promoting they want a small modular reactor for the tar sands in Alberta. So the nuclear reactor would provide the power for working in the tar sands? Yes. Is that a generally known fact up there? Like I said, people are are not on top of this. You know, the people that make the decisions and the voting power is not up here. We don't have much population. Population is down south and the voting power is down south. And everything that is done is for down south. Whatever they do up here, they think they can get away with it. Our job has been, you know, it's kind of tough when it's the only work that people can get. Our education system up here has been influenced by the uranium companies right down to the curriculum in the kindergarten so you know when we have teachers telling students in grade 12 just pass this class all you need to do is pass this class and you can get a job at the mine good paying job you don't have to know anything but the mining companies have their center for excellence in math in saskatoon we don't have a center for excellence in math They don't want our people knowledgeable. They don't want us to be the ones who can see the facts and read the facts. We have a difficult time getting people, scientists, researchers, to help us review Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission documents that come up for public review. We need help from technicians for that. And there's very few that want to do it because... If they do, they may not get to work again. That's a factor. That's a huge factor. 
Given all that you're up against, and this is a definition of a David and Goliath situation for you yet again, and you've been a very effective David in the past, put that in quotes, what is going on now to educate people? And what is it that you need in order to spread the word and the truth of this, certainly before the election, if at all possible? We're working on some videos, short messages. We need actual people to help us do that, but we are getting close to getting that. We need a script. We want to put some things together with the facts in a humorous way to affect people. We need people to help us with reviews. When you say reviews, what kind of reviews are you talking about? We need to review environmental impact statements with public period, which is very short. They can take as long as they want to put together an environmental impact statement to put before the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which reviews it, approves it, before it actually comes out for public comment. So in order to do things in a factual way, they only want you to do things based on science. They want to be clear, you know your science. It's got to be done on science. It doesn't necessarily have to be logical, but it has to be science so that you can actually dispute them because they think they're indisputable. They have this uh, imperialistic attitude that their technology puts them ahead of you, above you. So, you know, here we are in our communities, we get this, we're supposed to have consultation. As Indigenous communities, we're supposed to have consultation. Free, prior, informed consent, that sort of thing. Well, they come in and they tell us what they're going to do. It's already pre-approved by the time they tell us. And they just pretty much do a fishing kind of expedition into the community to ask us basically what what do you need in your community that we can provide to get you on site? In other words, a bribe. Basically. So they've kept our communities intentionally needy. You know, there are very few businesses in our communities. There's huge gaps in the health system, huge gaps in the education system, and not a lot of jobs. So what's the first question people ask when they come in? Well, what about jobs? How many jobs? What jobs? And as soon as they say that, they think they got you, right? So, and then they play people against one another. Those who care about the land and the, and the future generations against the people who want jobs today because there are no other jobs, right? So we've been in a bust economy now for two years because the uranium mining went down. But we still have uranium exploration companies applying for licenses to mine. And they put through their environmental impact statement during COVID without finishing consultations in the communities because all the communities up here were locked down and locked in. And there was no time and no way that any leadership could set up meetings. Any community members could be involved in meetings because a lot of our communities do not even have the technology to have Zoom meetings. So they put through their environmental impact assessment without completing that free prior and informed consent, that consultation. And when they do it, we get 30 days. 30 days, that's it? 30 days to put together something. That doesn't even give us time to 
we can apply for some funding. They put out a notice. We can apply for some funding so that, you know, maybe we can hire somebody. But by the time we get that, there's no time to review things in the depth that it needs to be reviewed. The whole process is lined up against us, basically. It's a farcical process. As it usually is in nuclear matters. If you were to get support from nuclear hot seat listeners to assist you, because it sounds like there's a lot of help needed here and maybe people have got better ideas than certainly I do at this moment. What can they do to communicate with you? How can they get the ideas to you? What else can they do to support you? If they have the technology background for reviewing these things and they don't need money, (laughs) please, 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 please reach out. You can contact me at committee for future generations at gmail.com. You can contact me on Facebook (laughs) by Candace Paul. You can reach out to the inner church uranium education committee in Saskatoon. We can get that information. I'll put that. Yeah. 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 Because they're really pushing hard right now on this small modular nuclear reactor process before this election that's coming up. And they're working on pamphlets. If you've got people who could help us edit pamphlets in clear, concise ways so that people with not high technical minds can understand it, that's important. Uh, You know, even for me, I go to any clinic and hospital in this area And there's not one single piece of information on radiation and health in a uranium mining area. I've been working on this for three years, trying to get a pamphlet put together, and I still haven't got one. So, you know, these things, I need to get them into these places where people can actually read them and realize that these jobs that their children are being promoted to, that their husbands and wives are working at, are not good for our health and it's not good for future generations health is there anything you can think of that you haven't been able to get in yet that you would like to add now primarily the fact that they really don't want to stop climate change they are using this long long way to so-called green energy source of small modular nuclear reactor to say they need to bring down our greenhouse gas emissions and they are lying there is a process happening to develop northern saskatchewan for resources that will include a northern corridor which is a 3000 kilometer long highway rail line pipelines grid system and telecommunication system several kilometers wide to get at all the resources in Northern Canada. And they want to also use that for the haul routes for all hazardous materials, including nuclear waste. And in that proposal, they also are looking forward to the Northwest Passage being open so they can use it to sell more of the resources that they're going to mine from our areas to Asia. No, they don't really want to do anything about the climate. And the climate is going to have a huge impact on whether or not they can even run a nuclear reactor. 
our, our temperatures for two weeks here were high. I notice where you are, they're getting crazy high, breaking records all over the place for this time of year. And you can't run nuclear reactors with warm water. And we don't need them warming more water. Just another point, one of the communities that were close to a uranium mine up here was one of the hardest hits communities in Saskatchewan with COVID. We can see that ability to thrive and the immune system has already been impacted. And was COVID traced back in any way to miners, people coming from the outside? <laughs> Actually, from the tar sands. It arrived and hit four communities from the tar sands. Well, I hope that you and Marius all remain safe and healthy and fighting the good fight. I hope that this interview beats the bushes well enough to stir up some support for what you do, because this is a great community that has formed around the show. And we will do what we can, as you are doing everything that you can, and Marius Paul, to protect us all. And I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Northern Saskatchewan-based First Nations activist, Candace Paul. We'll have a link up to the various sites she mentioned at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 480. And if you have any of the skills she requested help with, writing, editing script, editing video, social media outreach, you can reach her directly on Facebook at Candace Paul. Candace spelled with a Y. Activists, activists, If you want to fight back against the proposed so-called interim nuclear waste storage sites in New Mexico, Beyond Nuclear has put together a great guide for you to use, which includes talking points for you to include in your comments. Now, the public comment deadline is September 22nd. We will link to the Beyond Nuclear article so that you've got a head start on making the commentary. It's also got links in there for you to go directly to the NRC site for your comments. So if you're feeling particularly powerless in your current life or angry or just want to do something that at least feels like you're making a difference... Click under the activist info link on this page, Nuclear Hot Seat number 480, and speak your truth to power at the NRC. We need all of you to write. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, and yes, you can, newsatlas.com, apnews.com, ocregister.com, thebulletin.org, aljazeera.com, chicagotribune.com, Midwest Energy News, chicagobusiness.com, Bob Alvarez, WSILTV.com, Cleveland.com, MiamiHerald.com, KSDK.com, JapanTimes.co.jp, Mainichi.jp, Hani.co.kr, NHK.or.jp, FOE.scot, 
TheGuardian.com, France24.com, VanguardNGR.com, and the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and supporters around the world. Last time we did a tally, we were at 123 countries on six continents, always looking to add some more, and we are syndicated through the Pacifica Audioport Network. So if you know of a community radio station in your area that might be interested in carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, please send us an email at nuclearhotseat.com and we will follow up and see what we can do to get the show broadcast in your area. Now, if you want to really make sure that you get Nuclear Hot Seat every week, there's an easy way to do it. Go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and scroll down to the yellow opt-in box. That's where you put in your first name and an email address, and we will send you one email a week. That's it. It will contain a link to this week's show and a brief outline of some of the material that's in it. It's a great way to have the show and also to be able to share it to others on your email list. We really do rely on grassroots social media and email forwarding of the material to get the show out to people who may not even know that it exists. So do your part if you can this week and forward it to at least one person. If you don't have any friends you want to send it to, find a legislator and send it in that direction. As they like to say in New York, it couldn't hoit. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. That's how we stay up on the stories. So if you know something, please don't hold on to it. Let me know. I'd rather have the information from multiple directions than not get it at all. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, do what you can to support us. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. You know what button to look for and follow the prompts. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over because once it starts, it's never over. That's it. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.